0: I'm Elizabeth Barker, Stanford Calderwood Director of the Boston Athenaeum, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the William Orville Thompson Endowed Lecture for 2015. This highly anticipated annual talk is made possible through the generosity of Athenaeum proprietor Peter Thompson. On behalf of all of us in the audience tonight, and the many more who will enjoy this lecture afterwards online, thank you, Peter and Elizabeth. introduce our distinguished speaker. I hope you'll forgive a housekeeping note in the unlikely event of an emergency. Please follow the illuminated exit signs at the front and back of this auditorium to safety. And perhaps even more importantly, will you please silence any noise-making devices you might have with you, such as telephones? Thank you. Our speaker this evening is George Hovis, Associate Professor of English at SUNY Oneonta, who received his bachelor's degree from North Carolina State University and his master's and doctorate in English literature from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Hovis's list of publications is enviably broad, reflecting the mind of a thinker whose right and left brains seem miraculously well balanced. In addition to the critical analysis Veil of Humility, Plain Folk in in Contemporary North Carolina Fiction, he has written articles on Thomas Wolfe and other writers of the American South, including Tennessee Williams. In addition, Professor Hobus has also published numerous short stories and is currently at work on a novel that chronicles cultural transitions in the Sunbelt South. This evening, he will be speaking to us about Thomas Wolfe and what Ernest Hemingway dubbed the lost generation. Please join me in welcoming George Hovis to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: Thank, Thank you so much, Lizzie, for that generous introduction. And thank you all for coming. It's such a great honor to be here with members of this distinguished institution. What a beautiful space this is, it's my first visit. I hope it won't be the last. I'm Delighted to bring you greetings from the Thomas Wolfe Society. Uh, before I get started, I'd like to thank a few folks, Peter and Elizabeth Thompson, Lizzie Barker, Deborah Vernon, Bob West, and Victoria O'Malley, who I know have worked very hard to make this evening possible, so thank you. Um, I also want to thank my wife, Kim, who's in the back row, for driving me here. Um, Thomas Wolfe never learned to drive a motor car, and coming into Boston from the wilds of Central New York's Leatherstocking District today, I felt some kinship with him. Um, Thomas Wolfe is a large subject. There's so very much to say. (laughs) Okay, wrong presentation. You'll hear nothing tonight about the counterculture of the 1960s, but a little about the counterculture of the 1920s. The Tom Wolfe I'm here to discuss was not nearly so dapper a dresser. Thomas Clayton Wolfe, born in 1900 in Asheville, North Carolina, was rather known to dress in crumpled cigarette ash gray suits. His baggy, sometimes manic eyes were the sign of sleepless nights spent scratching out lines on top of a refrigerator. He was six feet seven. This brooding young genius of the 1920s and 30s fled his home in the North Carolina mountains and driven by wonderlust, tried with only sporadic success to feel any more at home in Boston, in New York, and then in the cultural capitals of Europe. During his life, Wolfe was acclaimed among the top ranks of American writers, Faulkner, for example, at one time listed Wolfe as the greatest American writer, because even though they all failed, Wolfe attempted the most. If Wolfe's readership has in recent decades not kept pace with that of some of his contemporaries, signs point to a resurgence of interest. In addition to renewed critical work, including at least one book and documentary film due out next year, we eagerly await release next year of a ma- major motion picture entitled Genius, based on the book by A. Scott Berg chronicling Wolfe's relationship with his Scribner's editor Maxwell Perkins. This film debut by stage director Michael Grandage will feature Jude Law in the role of Wolf and Colin Firth as Perkins, and I can't think of an actor who, more fitting for Perkins uh, as well as Nicole Kidman as Wolf's mistress, Aileen Bernstein. What an appropriate time for a Wolf revival as we pass through the centennial of the First World War, which Malcolm Cowley, among others, has identified as the event that gave rise to what Gertrude Stein first called the Lost Generation, a generation whose faith in Western civilization, its institutions and values have been thoroughly shattered by the waste of 17 million lives. What I hope to show in this talk tonight is how, although Woolf was a singular writer, he was also a product of his age, who in his early work very much participated in the aesthetics of the lost generation, and then in the years leading up to his untimely death at the age of 37, began to move deliberately beyond that ethos. In the posthumously published essay, My Generation, F. Scott Fitzgerald would assert that a generation such as theirs occurred as a reaction against the fathers. Malcolm Cowley observed a similar trend, especially as writers of that era rejected what they came to see as the hypocrisy and false pieties of their forebears. This rejection was nowhere more apparent than in their rejection of what Cowley called the big words that were used to promote the First World War. One thinks, for example, of Hemingway's Frederick Henry, who observed in A Farewell to Arms how he was always embarrassed by the words sacred, glorious, and sacrifice, explaining that in war he had seen nothing sacred, and the things that were glorious had no glory, and the sacrifices were like the stockyards at Chicago if nothing was done with the meat except to buy it. After watching the escalation of casualties at Verdun and the Somme, it was difficult to preserve romantic ideals of honor and courage. Cowley notes how those enormous butcheries of 1916 produced a change in the moral atmosphere of the war. By that time, it was death more than victory that obsessed the minds of soldiers on both sides. In the most popular American poem of the era, Alan Seeger's I Have a Rendezvous with Death, The speaker anxiously anticipates his rendezvous as if death were a beautiful mistress. Wolfe, who entered the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1916, uh, not quite 16 years old himself, uh, turned 18 just before the armistice, and so he lacked even the limited direct experiences of war had by American writers such as Fitzgerald and Faulkner, who wore uniforms without seeing active duty, and even Hemingway, Passos, and E.E. Cummings, who served in the ambulance corps. According to Cowley, these men were possessed of a spectatorial attitude toward the war and came home to share with friends and family, invented stories of courage in battle because they were denied the chance to prove themselves. Compared to the millions of Europeans uh, who lost their lives in the war, only 53,000 American soldiers died in battle. And many of them, especially the writers, returned home with the whiny taste of war still in their mouths, craving the intensified living they had encountered when confronting death, if only from a distance. is best known for this preoccupation. Wolfe, who watched all of the upperclassmen at Chapel Hill enlist, leaving him behind to march in parades and write heroic poetry, would later lampoon the war effort and the romanticism of death that swept the nation. In Look Homeward Angel, his alter ego, Eugene Gant, languishes on campus, hoping the war will endure long enough for him to enlist. By Christmas, with fair luck, he might be eligible for service in khaki. By spring, if God was good, All the proud privileges of trench lice, mustard gas, spattered brains, punctured lungs, ripped guts, asphyxiation, mud, and gangrene might be his. For the first time, he saw the romantic charm of mutilation. The perfect and unblemished heroes of his childhood now seemed cheap to him, fit only to illustrate advertisements for collars and toothpaste. He longed for that subtle distinction, that air of having lived and suffered that could only be attained by a wooden leg, a rebuilt nose, or the seared scar of a bullet across his temple. As with other members of the lost generation, the Great War, which unleashed unprecedented destruction and showed the Western world the upshot of all its technology and progress, contributed to Wolfe's youthful cynicism, This disaffection was compounded by the conservative and even jingoistic spirit that pervaded the country following the war. In 1919, Congress passed the notorious Volstead Act. The age of prohibition, of virulent anti-communism and anti-socialism made many writers and artists, including those who had served in the war, feel like outsiders in their own country. And many of them left America to live and work as expatriates in Europe, most notably in Paris. Like other Americans, Wolfe found in James Joyce, his model of the artist as exile. Like Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, Wolfe's debut novel, and still his most admired, Look Homeward Angel, published by Scribner's in 1929, is a Kunstler-Roman, describing the journey of Eugene Gantt from his earliest cradle memories through his adolescent years at a prep school in Asheville. Asheville is uh, called Altamont in the novel his college years at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, renamed Pulpit Hill, and ending with his final escape from the mountains, his departure from home to attend graduate school at Harvard. In this story of Eugene's education as a young man, considerable space, perhaps too much, is devoted to his experience of reading and in the classroom. More attention, though, is paid to his sexual initiations and the ways he learns the barriers his society has erected regarding race and social class. The novel's main narrative focus uh, is on Eugene's gropings for independence within a large, turbulent, nuclear family. Like Thomas Wolfe, Eugene Gant is the youngest of seven children to survive infancy. It is not a happy family. We witness the children's jockeying for the affections and approval of their parents in a home where too little of both is available to go around. The parents' limited skills at nurturing are further hampered by their separation. And it's, I think, one of the earliest novels of uh, a dysfunctional family and familial separation. When Eugene is not quite eight years old, his mother, Eliza, purchases a boarding house called Dixieland and takes Eugene, her youngest, along with her, leaving his siblings behind two blocks away with their father. And all of this is uh, incredibly autobiographical. For Eugene, the move meant the loss forever of the tumultuous, unhappy, warm center of his home. Wolf's description of the childhood home Eugene lost as being a tumultuous and unhappy but warm center is typical of the ambivalence that permeates the novel. Almost nowhere is there a pure emotion, one presented without some degree of irony. Consider, for example, the account of Eugene's birth. Eugene's laboring mother locks herself in the birthing chamber while his drunken father, Gant, hammers at the door and cries out his invective. In characteristically reflexive self-pity, Gant stands by the door and invokes the memory of his first wife and incongruously begs the universe for protection from his current pregnant spouse, whom he calls a fiend out of hell. "'Little did I wreck,' Gant laments, "'the day I first saw her eighteen bitter years ago, "'when she came wriggling around the corner at me like a snake on her belly, that it would come to this. Of course, we respond in horror, but with the repetition of his invective also, with humor. The farcical elements become all the more apparent when Gant begins quoting Shakespeare, casting himself in the roles of both the martyred Julius Caesar and his eulogizer, Mark Anthony. Standing outside the birthing chamber as if he were descending the steps of the Roman Senate and pointing to his imagined wounds, Gant opines, Look, in this place ran Cassius' dagger through. See what a rent the envious Casca made? In a novel replete with alienated characters, Gant is the most so. Aging, stricken with cancer... His own self-pity and his resilient appetites, his drunken bouts and adulterous adventures, all of them failing to satisfy. But there is a grandeur in his comic invective, and his frequent dramatic recitations of Shakespeare and epic poetry, songs of the spur and saber instill in his son Eugene a love of language and a belief that the right combination of words can lift all of them out of the shame and squalor of their lives. Gant is a blue collar artist, a carver in stone and proprietor of a main street shop that sells cemetery monuments. His lifelong dream, which he never achieves, is to carve in stone the likeness of an angel's head. It will fall to Eugene to continue his father's quest, seeking transcendence through art. The modernist themes are all here, alienation, miscommunication, entropy, loss, doubt, but also the necessity of groping in darkness for a proper form to reveal what is real, a nascent faith in the salvific properties of art and language. Throughout appears the refrain, Oh, lost. But juxtaposed against such despair is the romantic faith in the pursuit of signs, a stone, a leaf, an unfound door, which will lead the questing questing consciousness toward some lost lane end into heaven. Listen to these warring emotions in the following proem, which opens the novel. A stone a leaf, an unfound door, of a stone, a leaf, a door, and of all the forgotten faces. Naked and alone we came into exile. In her dark womb we did not know our mother's face. From the prison of her flesh have we come into the unspeakable and incommunicable prison of this earth. Which of us has known his brother? Which of us has looked into his father's heart? Which of us has not remained forever prison-pent? Which of us is not forever a stranger and alone? A waste of loss, in the hot mazes lost, among bright stars on this most weary, unbright sender lost remembering speechlessly we seek the great forgotten language the lost lane end into heaven a stone a leaf an unfound door where when oh lost and by the wind grieved ghost come back again Richard Kennedy was the first to call attention to the words worthy and optimism buried in this passage the belief expressed in in a pre-existence that leaves its traces upon childhood. But that faith is here at best an embattled one. The more frequent refrain of O oh, Lost in this pro appears throughout the novel. Indeed, the original title for the novel was O oh, Lost, before Wolf and Perkins replaced it with the line from Milton's Lycidas, Look homeward, angel now, and melt with ruth. Just as Milton employs in Lycidas the form of pastoral elegy to mourn the death of his college friend, Edward King, who drowned while sailing the Irish Sea, in his novel, Wolf mourns the death by pneumonia of his brother, Ben Wolf, who drowned as his lungs filled with fluid. Ben Wolf appears in Look Homeward Angel as Ben Gant, the older brother who takes Eugene under his wing, who buys him clothes when their parents are too stingy to do so. It is Ben who takes him to the doctor when Eugene returns home from college, suffering from shame and pubic lice after visiting a brothel. And it is Ben who lends his younger brother anything resembling sustained emotional support, even though the hard-edged Ben is careful never to appear sentimental. Wolf recalls his older brother bearing a perpetual scowl, his smile like the flash of light along a blade. Ben always gave a cuff instead of a caress. He was full of pride and tenderness. Tom would later write to his sister Mabel, I think the Asheville I knew died for me when Ben died. This is from the Wolf Memorial, Ben's bedroom, where he died. I have never forgotten him, and I never shall. I think that his death affected me more than any other event in my life. Ben He was one of those fine people who want the best and highest out of life and who get nothing, who die unknown and unsuccessful. The disenchantment with Asheville that Wolfe felt, so typical of the revolt from the village school popular during his era, was always fraught with ambivalence and nostalgia. Even though he was eager to leave home, home would provide the subject matter of his early writing and he refused even to change the names of family members who had already died upon the publication of Le Combert Angel, Ben, Ben's twin brother, Grover, and the father, W.O. By some counts, there are also 200 other characters in the novel based on Asheville residents. When Wolf's editor, Maxwell Perkins, first realized with shock how almost literally autobiographical the novel was, Wolf explained, but Mr. Perkins, you don't understand. I think these people are great people, and they should be told about. There were many in Asheville who disagreed. (laughs) Wolf received many angry letters from his hometown and some death threats. It would be another eight years before he returned to Asheville, and by then his return would be celebrated in the local papers. Wolf's criticism of Asheville can be heard in the following letter to his mother written from graduate school in Harvard in 1923. I will step on toes. I will not hesitate to say what I think of those people who shout progress, 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 when they mean more Ford automobiles, more rotary clubs, more Baptist ladies social unions. I will say that greater Asheville does not necessarily mean 100,000 by 1930. That we are not necessarily four times as civilized as our grandfathers because we go four times as fast um, in automobiles. Because our buildings are four times as tall. What I shall try to get into their dusty little pint measure minds is that a full belly, a good automobile, paved streets, and so on, do not make them one whit better or finer. That there is beauty in this world. Beauty even in this wilderness of ugliness and provincialism that is at present our country. Beauty and spirit, which will make us men instead of cheap pamphleteers. Like others of his generation, Wolf attacked the babbitry and materialism of the era. A major tourist destination in the southeast, one that attracted a growing number of tubercular patients hoping to benefit from the mountain air, Asheville was a boomtown during Wolf's youth. His mother, participated fully in the mania of real estate speculation, and Wolf satirizes her obsession in his portrait of Eugene Gant's mother, Eliza. Eliza saw Altamont, not as so many hills, buildings, people, she saw it in the pattern of a gigantic blueprint. She knew the history of every piece of valuable property, who bought it, who sold it, who owned it in 1893. She watched the tides of traffic cannily. She knew by what corners the largest number of people passed in a day or an hour. And looking in a straight line through houses and lots, she said, there'll be a street through there someday. Her vision of land and population was clear, crude, focal. It was extraordinary for its direct intensity. Julia Wolfe's most important purchase was the old Kentucky home an 18-room boarding house which Wolfe renames Dixieland in La Comrade Angel. The purchase provided an escape from her abusive, alcoholic husband, but it also brought new tensions into the Wolfe family. Like his siblings, Wolfe did not have warm feelings toward the old Kentucky home, where he accused his mother of spending more time and energy attending to boarders than to her own children. In Look Homeward, Angel, those borders are characterized as freelance prostitutes and consumptives, bringing generally unhealthy influences into the lives of the children growing up in what the father calls the barn. Each of the boys has his sexual initiation with one of the summer widows vacationing at Dixieland. And even though the proprietors would advertise no sick people on her business cards, Her children accused her of indiscriminately accepting borders with the bugs because her intense stinginess conditioned by reconstruction era poverty would not allow her to miss out on the profits. It is likely in the old Kentucky home that Wolf himself contracted the tuberculosis that would kill him two weeks shy of his 38th birthday. Look Homeward Angel chronicles the painful process of an artist's leave taking from home. His tearing loose the umbilical, tying him to an often neglectful mother, who nevertheless had him sleep with her late into childhood. Two, it depicts Eugene's dubious privilege of being the family's golden child, the only one to complete a university education. In the following scene, the brother, uh, Luke's older brother, just above him, reminds him of his many advantages, And Eugene bristles at being forced to acknowledge his debts of gratitude. Just as I cannot imagine or cannot name a more moving death scene in all of literature than that of Ben Gantz, I can't think of a more poisonous leave-taking than Eugene's here. His Christmas break from college has recently ended in fights with his family. "'Son,' said Eliza, again with her ancient look of trouble and frustration. We must try to get on together. No, he said, alone. I've done an apprenticeship here with you for 17 years, but it's coming to an end. I know that I shall escape. I know that I have been guilty of no great crime against you, and I'm no longer afraid of you. Why, why boy, said Eliza, we've done all we could for you. What crime have we accused you of? Of breathing your air? "'of eating your food, of living under your roof, "'of having your life and your blood in my veins, "'of accepting your sacrifice and privation, "'and of being ungrateful for it all.' "'We should all be thankful for what we have,' "'said Luke sententiously. "'Many a fellow would give his right eye "'for the chance you've been given.' "'I've been given nothing,' said Eugene, "'his voice mounting with a husky flame of passion. "'I'll go bit over no longer in this house.' What chance I've got, I have had, I've made for myself in spite of you all and over your opposition. You sent me away to the university when you could do nothing else, when it would have been a crying disgrace to you among the people in this town if you hadn't. You sent me off a year too soon before I was 16 with a box of sandwiches, two suits of clothes, and instructions to be a good boy. They sent you some money, too, said Luke. Don't forget that. I'd be the only one who would if I did, the boy answered. For that is really what is behind everything, isn't it? If I did badly at the university with money of my own, you'd dare say nothing. But if I do well on money you gave me, I must still be reminded of your goodness and my unworthiness. Why, why son, said Eliza diplomatically, no one has said a word against the way you've done your work. We're very proud of you. You needn't be. He said sullenly. I've wasted a great deal of time and some money, but I've had something out of it, more than most. I've done as much work for my wages as you deserve. I've given you fair value for your money. I thank you for nothing. What's that? What's that? said Eliza sharply. I said, I thank you for nothing, but I take that back. That's better, said Luke. Yes, I have a great deal to give thanks for, said Eugene. I give thanks for every dirty lust and hunger that crawled through the polluted blood of my noble ancestors. I give thanks for every scrofulous token that may ever come upon me. I give thanks for the love and mercy that needed me over the washtub the day before my birth. I give thanks for the country slut who nursed me and let my dirty bandage fester across my navel. I give thanks for every blow and curse I had from any of you during my childhood, for every dirty cell you ever gave me to sleep in, for the ten million hours of cruelty or indifference and the 30 minutes of cheap advice. Unnatural, Eliza, Eliza whispered. Unnatural, son. You will be punished if there is a God in heaven. Oh, there is. I'm sure of it, cried Eugene, because I have been punished. By God, I shall spend the rest of my life getting my heart back, healing and forgetting every scar you put upon me when I was a child. The first move I ever made after the cradle was to crawl for the door. And every move I've made since has been an effort to escape. And now at last, I'm free from you all. Although you may hold me a few more years. If I'm not free, I am at least locked up into my own prison. But I shall get me some beauty. I shall get me some order out of this jungle of my life. I shall find my way out of it yet, though it take me 20 years more, alone. Alone? Alone? said Eliza with the old suspicion. Where are you going? Ha! he said. You weren't looking, were you? I've gone. They make up. <laughs> <laughs> and most of what Eugene learns of love, he learns at home. But these sorts of fights leave deep scars and make his exile inevitable. Inevitable. This is Wolfe at his most Byronic. And it's an example of how the strains of dark romanticism are woven integrally into the literary fabric of modernism and the lost generation. One of the ways that Wolfe has been viewed as a dark romantic relates to his writing process. Many critics have noted an imbalance in the artist favoring lyrical expression, unbounded rhetoric, often at the expense of cohesive and intentional form. The most damning criticism came from Bernard DeVoto, who had this to say of Wolfe's second novel, Of Time in the River. Mr. Wolfe is presented to us and to himself as a genius, and what is more, a genius of the good old-fashioned romantic type, possessed by a demon, driven by the gales of his own fury, ''helpless before the lava flood of his own passion, selected and set apart for greatness, his lips touched by a live coal, consequently unable to exercise any control over what he does, and in fact likely to be damaged or diminished by any effort at control. ''Chaos is everything, if you have enough of it in you to make a world. Yes, but what if you don't make a world? What if you just make a noise?'' Ouch. Despite the fact that Wolfe's second novel of Time in the River sold much better and received considerably more critical attention than his first, Devoto would find it uh, inferior due to its increased ratio of rhetoric to dramatic scene. I find it interesting that in the same review, Devoto lavishes highest praise upon Joyce's Ulysses, which contains passages of rhetoric and seamless interior monologue far exceeding in length anything Wolfe ever penned. Another criticism of Devoto's that stung Wolfe to the quick was his charge that Wolfe utterly lacked the ability to appraise critically his own work, and so depended on Scribner's assembly line to help give shape to his work and even understand when a book was finished. Wolfe's Scrivener's editor, Maxwell Perkins, would later recall how on Thanksgiving Day, 1933, Wolf brought him an early draft of, of Time in the River in two feet of type script. The manuscript's opening scene was comprised of 30,000 words devoted to Eugene Gantz waiting for the train that would take him north to Harvard. Of Time in the River uh, begins exactly where the Comrade Angel ends. Perkins trimmed the 30,000 words to 10,000, explaining to Tom, when you're waiting for a train, there's suspense. Something's going to happen. But you can't sustain the suspense to the extent of 30,000 words. There never was any cutting that Tom did not agree to, Perkins maintained. He knew that cutting was necessary. His whole impulse was to utter what he felt, and he had no time to revise and compress. Elsewhere in the same essay, Perkins concedes that, with the exception of a long opening episode, Le Angel* Angel required much less cutting. And in The Story of a Novel, Wolfe recalls how his first novel practically wrote itself, but how, as with many authors' second novels, He was at pains to discover a new process of time in the river. The labor of this discovery involved three years of work and perhaps a million words Wolf recalls, it included everything from gigantic and staggering lists of towns, cities, counties, states, and countries i have been in, to minutely thorough, desperately evocative descriptions of the undercarriage, the springs, wheel flanges, axle rods, color, weight, and quality of the day coach of an American railway train. Perhaps some of the 20,000 words Perkins cut from that opening scene. Like his father... Wolf was a large man with large appetites. And like his creator, Eugene Gant wanted to eat all the food in the world, read all the world's books, sleep with all its women. Claiming to have read 200,000 books in 10 years, Eugene was tormented by the knowledge that there existed books in the world that he would never have time to read. Maybe some of you feel that way (laughs) with this lovely library. This urge to encompass the whole of experience is part Whitmanesque, part Faustian, and part pathological. A number of critics have observed manic depressive tendencies in Wolfe, and even tendencies toward psychosis, which his obsessive output of writing seems to have exacerbated. He was a writer who could not stop writing who could not take a break out of fear that his material would back up on him. Like Hemingway, he wrote, in part, to forget, to lay to rest his past experience and make room for more. Writing was his life. Wolf is remembered strolling through the streets at dawn, trumpeting, I wrote 10,000 words today. What he meant was, that night, he usually went to bed at dawn after having written all night. He would stay up all night smoking endless cigarettes, drinking bottomless cups of coffee. According to legend, his six-foot-seven frame leaning over the top of a refrigerator, scrawling furiously, filling up ledgers in his nearly indecipherable handwriting. Because his mind raced ahead of his hand, Wolf never learned to type. He would often make the first and last letters of a word with a squiggle in between, leaving the sheets in a pile on the floor for his typist to decipher the following day. In this It is this unbridled exuberance that has always attracted most of his readers, including Maxwell Perkins. When Perkins first heard of Wolfe, he had a sense of foreboding. When he decided to publish him, he knew that he and Scribner's were in for turbulence. But as Perkins would say, every good thing that comes is accompanied by trouble. Perkins, who edited some of the greatest writers of the early 20th century, including Hemingway and Fitzgerald, created careful boundaries between his working and personal lives, but he made an exception in Wolfe's case. The two men were polar opposites, hot-headed southerner, and restrained, aloof New Englander. Perkins, who was the father of five daughters, found in Wolfe the son he had never had, and Wolfe found in Perkins the stable father figure he had spent his life seeking. This complementarity worked as well in their literary relationship especially with Of Time in the River, knowing that he could trust in Perkins's critical skills allowed Wolfe to write with an unrestrained exuberance. But after Devoto's sharp words, Wolf found that he needed to make a break from his father figure. In nineteen thirty seven Wolfe left Scribner's and signed a contract with Harper and Brothers, where he would work with an editor his own age. Edward Aswell became not Wolfe's father, but his brother. With this change came a shift in Wolfe's goals as an artist and in his process. Whereas Perkins believed that Wolfe's whole impulse was to utter what he felt and he had no time to revise and compress, Aswell observed that the later Wolfe had become a tireless reviser and rewriter. Whether this was true of him in his younger days, Aswell concedes, I cannot say, but it was certainly true of him later. Aswell explains that for Wolf, the process of revision began long before he began committing a passage to paper. He could not put anything that had happened to him out of his consciousness, Aswell notes, until he had rehearsed it in memory a thousand times, going back over it again and again in every detail until he had got at the core of it and had extracted the last shred of meaning out of it on every level. And when he did begin working out an episode on the page, he would always work through drafts, often as many as four or five versions. And these versions, of course, were not produced with a word processor cutting and pasting. Rather, Wolf would uh, always put aside a previous draft and re-enter the episode imaginatively. Aswell came better to understand, too, how Wolf's project, what he called the book, included a multi-volume work that told the story of his entire life and that Wolfe was not much concerned with delineations of the book into volumes. He didn't care, Aswell said, whether in the end it would make one book or a dozen. That was the worry of publishers. According to Aswell, though, Wolfe did have very clear ideas about the relation of parts to the whole. He had planned the whole from first to last, and the whole was complete within him before he ever began to write. And at a moment's notice, Wolf could produce from his enormous repository of writing any draft of any episode he wanted. Unfortunately, the same could not be said for his editors. Oops, sorry. This was the enormous crate of manuscript that Wolf deposited upon Ed Aswell's desk for safekeeping when he paid a last visit to his editor in May of 1938. The world traveler was heading west for what would be his final journey. Wolfe had been invited to deliver the keynote address at Purdue University's Literary Awards Banquet. This, his final public address, was the first stop on a westward journey that would culminate in a two-week motor car journey through eight states visiting 11 national parks and traveling 4,500 miles on New Western Highway. Before setting out, he had written an excitement to his sister Mabel, describing his plans to hit for the wide open spaces, to look at geysers and big trees and mountains. Consistent with Wolf's new global consciousness, he intended to chronicle America's West. And indeed, the last creative work he produced would be the copious notes he had made along the trek, published in 1951 as a Western journal. But the miles and the breakneck pace and the late hours and little sleep caught up with him. In his last years, despite his understanding that he needed to find a way to rest, he could not do so. After completing the Western journey, he found himself in Seattle utterly exhausted and then forged ahead into Canada, coming down with pneumonia in Vancouver. Back in Washington, Wolf was hospitalized and over the coming weeks, his condition worsened. He suffered bouts of fever, excruciating headaches, and eventually lapses of lucidity. Fred and Mabel Wolf, the siblings to whom Wolf was closest after the passing of Ben, hurried to Seattle to be by their brother's side. His condition was beyond the expertise of the staff at Seattle. And so Fred and Mabel traveled with Tom by rail eastward across the continent. Julia Wolfe met them in Chicago, and from there, they proceeded to Baltimore's Johns Hopkins Hospital, where his father had gone so many times before to seek radiation treatments for cancer. At Hopkins, the nation's foremost neurosurgeon, Dr. Walter Dandy, performed exploratory surgery and determined that Wolfe was suffering from tubercular meningitis. Pneumonia had opened an old tubercular lesion in his lungs, which had traveled through the blood to his brain. The entire right hemisphere was infested with tubercles, and the condition was inoperable. Wolfe lost consciousness and died three days later. Along with family, Max Perkins and Ed Aswell were both present at his bedside, as was his agent, Elizabeth Nowell. Perkins would later serve as an honorary pallbearer at Riverside Cemetery in Asheville. When Scott Fitzgerald learned of Wolf's passing, he remarked, there's a great hush after him. Scott found it difficult to believe that Wolf's great, pulsing, vital frame was quiet at last. Later, when Julia Wolf received the $5,000 bill of her son's surgery, she refused to pay it, arguing that the famous neurosurgeon had failed to save Tom's life. Perkins intervened to have the fee reduced. Earlier that summer, in August, back in the Seattle hospital, Wolf had written to his former editor, "'Dear Max, I'm sneaking this against orders, but I've got a hunch, and I wanted to write these words to you. I've made a long voyage and been to a strange country, and I've seen the dark man very close. And I don't think I was too much afraid of him, but so much of mortality still clings to me. I want him most desperately to live, and still do.' And I thought about you all a thousand times and wanted to see you all again. And there was the impossible anguish and regret of all the work I had not done, of all the work I had to do. And I know now I'm just a grain of dust. And I feel as if a great window has been opened on life I did not know about before. And if I come through this, I hope to God I am a better man. And in some strange way I can't explain, I know I'm a deeper and wiser one. If I get on my feet and out of here, it will be months before I head back. But if I get on my feet, I'll come back. Whether Wolf's statement here indicated an intention to return to Scribner's is open for speculation. But this final letter does make clear the central place of Max Perkins in Wolf's life, and it provides a clear articulation of the direction Wolf was headed personally and as a writer. In contrast to the gargantuan, gantian appetites, the preoccupation with his own special genius, here Wolf comes to see himself as a grain of dust. I'd like to spend the rest of the time we have remaining looking at Wolf's second novel and final complete posthumous novel as evidence of that deeper wisdom. After Wolfe's death, his present editor, Edward Aswell, stared at the crate of manuscript on his desk, the million and a half words. Fortunately, he had help in Wolfe's literary executor, Max Perkins, and his agent, Elizabeth Nowell. Though much heated debate has centered around the question of Aswell's editing the posthumous work, most Woolf scholars believe he performed with admirable rigor the Herculean task that lay before him. In the three years following Wolfe's death, Harper and Brothers brought out two complete novels, The Web and the Rock, 1939, and You Can't Go Home Again, 1940, followed in 1941 by The Hills Beyond, a collection of stories as well as the unfinished titular novel. All are very well worth reading, but You Can't Go Home Again is widely regarded as Wolfe's posthumous masterpiece. So see, part of what I'm doing here is trying to sell Wolfe, and I'm saying... You know, if there are only so many titles uh, on your shelf, I think this should be one of them. Like the two novels Wolf published during his life, the two complete posthumous novels take the form of autobiographical Kunstler-Romana, although the protagonist has a new name. The tall, lanky Eugene Gant has been transformed into George Weber, whose long, swinging arms and simian features earn him the nickname Monk. There's no doubt that Wolfe has continued to make extensive use of autobiographical materials, but the later work uh, in it he has more frequently strayed from autobiography, and more important, his view of himself has changed, especially in You Can't Go Home Again. George Weber is possessed of a greater maturity, generosity, and gentlemanliness than Eugene Gant. He is much less Byronic, less driven by a boundless appetite for rich and varied experience, less preoccupied with his own alienated and special genius. Whereas the evolution of Eugene Gant's consciousness, especially in Le Combert Angel, is toward an appreciation of the need for isolation from family and community in order to answer the call of his muse, Weber's evol- evolution is just the opposite. Throughout You Can't Go Home Again, he moves from narcissism to an awareness of the ways he is the brother of all men living, that every atom belonging to Weber as good belongs to them. C. Hugh Holman was one of the first critics to express the opinion that Wolfe was at his finest in the form of the novella. You Can't Go Home Again is comprised of seven discrete novellas or books arranged in such a way as to reveal Weber's evolving egalitarian consciousness. In each of these seven books, we watch Weber struggle to overcome his own egocentrism and to renounce elitist groups he had joined in pursuit of his own special, his own selfish desires for success and fame. Books one and two revolve around Weber's discovery that he must break with his wealthy mistress, Esther Jack. Theirs is a relationship based upon Wolfe's five-year affair with Aileen Bernstein, an eminent set and costume designer with New York's Theater Guild. Married to a successful stockbroker and 18 years Wolfe's senior, Aileen Bernstein provided spiritual and financial support to the young Thomas Wolfe when he was struggling to finish and find a publisher for his first novel. The collection of Wolfe's and Bernstein's letters, My Other Loneliness, shows how passionate and tortured was their relationship, easily the most important romantic relationship of Wolfe's life. And although Wolfe's reasons for breaking off from Bernstein were more numerous and varied than Weber's for leaving Esther, a prevailing cause in both instances was his rejection of the moneyed world that insulated him from suffering humanity. Weber's rejection of Esther Jack is ultimately an aesthetic choice. He rejects her motives as an artist. The Jacks are not the idle rich. They are workers. Esther's alcoholic maid, Nora, realizes that she, Nora, does not have in all her lazy body as much energy, resolution, and power as the other woman carries in the tip of her little finger. Still... In Wolfe's view, that energy is channeled within a limited range for narcissistic purposes, leading to frivolous diversions for a social elite. Um, This section concludes with um, a party, a dinner party, that Esther is preparing for her artistic friends. And the entirety of book two, The World That Jack Built, follows the preparatory labors of Esther and her domestic staff for that party. Uh, it ends with Esther's Coup de gras, The Evening's Entertainment, which is Piggy Logan's performance of circus puppets, which is an absurdist performance art piece in the spirit of Dada. His puppet show is tremendously in vogue among the city's artistic elite. While all of Esther's guests gather around and pretend interest in Piggy Logan's manipulation of wire circus animals, The real drama this night goes on behind the scenes in the alcoholic maid Nora's day-to-day struggle with addiction and aging, in the elevator men's arguments about the purpose of their work and the relevance of organized labor, and ultimately in their battle against the fire that will consume them but will not touch the Jack's apartment. Against the backdrop of impending conflagration, we learn how Mr. Piggy Logan's fame was certainly blazing now, and an entire literature and the higher aesthetics had been created about him and his puppets. Critical reputations have been made or ruined by them. Mr. Piggy Logan and his circus of wire dolls demanded their own vocabulary. To speak of them correctly, one must know a language whose subtle nuances were becoming more highly specialized month by month. The leading tragedians of the theater were instructed to pay special attention to Mr. Logan's clown before they next essayed the role of Hamlet. The highest intelligences of the time, the very subtlest of the chosen few, were bored by many things. They tilled the wasteland, and erosion had grown fashionable. They were bored with love, and they were bored with hate. They were bored with chastity, and they were bored with adultery. They were bored with the great poets of the world, whose great poems they had never read. They were bored with hunger in the streets, with the men who were killed, with children who starved, and with the injustice, cruelty, and oppression all around them. They were bored with living, and they were bored with dying. But they were not bored that year with Mr. Piggy Logan and his circus of wire dolls. Days after Esther Jack's party comes the stock market crash, and the novel's chapter later chapters chronicle the following years of the Great Depression, and the widespread suffering and homelessness Weber sees in Brooklyn. And unlike Mr. Piggy Logan's admirers, he doesn't turn away. When he travels abroad, he is similarly confronted by uh, suffering. Visiting Berlin during the 1936 Olympic Games, Weber is shocked by the rise of the Nazi party and the persecution of the Jews. At first, the widespread persecution and the fear is subtle. The name of a friend left off the invitation list to a party. But ultimately, he witnesses more flagrant evidence, including the detention of a Jew from a train stopped at the French-German border. Based on an autobiographical account, Wolfer caused his helplessness to intervene. George and the others felt somehow naked and ashamed and somehow guilty. They all felt that they were saying farewell, not to a man, but to humanity. Wolf, who was wildly celebrated in Germany, understood that in publishing his critical account of the Nazis, which first appeared serially in the New Republic in March of 1937, his books would be banned in Germany. I'm skipping ahead just a bit, uh, skipping some delicious passages in which Wolf castigates the lost generation and makes clear that he doesn't see himself as a part of them. Um, I want to focus now on 1929 as a watershed in Wolf's life as an artist. Sean Holliday points out that the stock market crash of 1929 served as a watershed moment for Wolf artistically. In the same way that the First World War served as a pivotal moment for members of the lost generation. These two historical events produced disparate responses from two generations of artists, or numerous cases from two phases of the same artists. With the 1920s, writers inclined to withdraw from the world into an aesthetic bubble, typified by the American expatriate movement and their Parisian literary salons, whereas writers of the 1930s were more engaged with the social problems of their era. You can't go home again, says Holiday, charts Wolf's transition from Literary metaphysician to social activist. That transition involves the need for Wolf and his protagonist George Weber to look back critically at his own artistic motives. When speaking of the Lost Generation, it is difficult not to think of Wolf's original title for his debut, Oh Lost. In his letter to Fox, George Weber certainly associates his earlier artistic vision with that of the Lost Generation. And it's worth noting that Wolfe, between 1924 and 1936, made seven visits to Europe and spent a total of three years abroad. Uh, So if if expatriatism is a litmus test for membership in the Lost Generation, he certainly passed that. But he recalls later on how they all talked a great deal about art and beauty. A great deal about the artist. A great deal too much, in fact. For the artist as we conceived him was a kind of aesthetic monster. Certainly he was not a living man. Indeed, if he had any existence outside of our imaginations, he must have been one of the most extraordinary and inhuman freaks that nature ever created. Instead of loving life and believing in life, our artist hated life and fled from it. That, in fact, was the basic theme of most of the stories, plays, and novels we wrote. We were forever portraying the sensitive man of talent, the young genius crucified by life, misunderstood and scorned of men, pilloried and driven out by the narrow bigotry and mean provincialism of the town or village. This passage fairly aptly describes the young Eugene Gantt as well as Sherwood Anderson's George Willard or Faulkner's Quentin Compson or, according to Walter Sullivan in the New Faustus, the protagonists of many modernist novels created after a Joycean model, young men who reject the claims of community and cling to their own alienation. Whereas, Look Homeward Angel ends with Eugene Gantt's celebration of himself, his final discovery of a stone, a leaf, a door, in the city of himself, in the continent of his own soul you can't go home again ends with Weber's gaze outward having just broken his ties with Germany he turns his critical but hopeful gaze upon America I believe that we are lost here in America but I believe we shall be found and this belief which mounts now to the catharsis of knowledge and conviction is for me and I think for all of us Not only our hope, but America's everlasting living dream. I think the life which we have fashioned in America and which has fashioned us, the forms we made, the cells that grew, the honeycomb that was created, was self-destructive in its nature and must be destroyed. I think these forms are dying and must die, just as I know that America and the people in it are deathless, undiscovered, and immortal and must live. As well as an artistic evolution, You Can't Go Home Again charts Wolf's political evolution, involving a more direct critique of capitalism's excesses, and a deeper commitment to New Deal socialism. A segment of the novel published in New Masses ended up with Wolf's name on the FBI's list of communist sympathizers. Moreover, his attention, while focused primarily on America, became increasingly global in its outlook. In charting this artistic evolution, I want to be careful not to privilege too much Wolfe's later work, especially since I enjoy his first novel at least as much as his last. Maybe that's the dark romantic in me. But I do feel that part of what makes Wolfe such an important American author is his growth, his openness to change, his responsiveness to history that he witnessed and ultimately to his triumph over egotism. You Can't Go Home Again ends with these final words in which Wolf seems to foresee and to accept his own death while showing increasing optimism about the world's future. Something has spoken to me in the night and told me I shall die. I know not where, saying, To lose the earth you know for greater knowing. To lose the life you have for greater life. To leave the friends you loved for greater loving. To find a land more kind than home, more large than earth. Whereon the pillars of this earth are founded, toward which the conscience of the world is tending. A wind is rising and the rivers flow. Thank you so much for your attention.